Amen. What a powerful song, man. Those lyrics are so incredibly powerful, the reminder of the gospel, and what a foretaste of deliverance, what we have to look forward to in Christ. Thank you, Aaron and Caleb. I feel like cello just adds an air of like gravitas to the worship, doesn't it? It makes it just more, uh, I don't know, just lifts it up, makes it more ethereal and holy, I feel like. So thank you. It's good to have all these musicians in our church and Caleb's getting his master's. Where is he? He left at Belmont. There he is. Are you getting your master's or did you get your master's? You're getting your master's at Belmont in cello performance. It's awesome. Awesome. Why don't you teach my kids how to do that? That's, that's great. <laughs> you know, I had the privilege uh, last week of having lunch with one of my mentor friends. And uh, this guy's uh, a great guy. He's older. He's retired businessman. Very successful. He's given me a lot of wise counsel over the year. And he was telling me about his brother. His brother um, and him were both raised in the church and uh, both, you know, baptized, knew the Lord. Uh, but his brother kind of had become jaded to the things of spiritual nature, kind of left the church and walked away from his faith. And then uh, later in midlife was diagnosed with throat cancer. Not a surprise. He was a lifelong smoker and uh, diagnosed with throat cancer and so in, entered into treatment, of course, uh, and uh, endured, you know, you all know how the story goes, endured, uh, you know, very intense uh, radiation therapy as well as chemotherapy. And after six months of, of fighting and, and battling, he was pronounced in remission. It was great. He was cancer free. And then many of you know this story as well. A, a year later, uh, cancer came back and uh, was not only in the throat, but had metastasized to his lungs as well. And the doctor said, look, it's, it's stage four. It's aggressive. We really can't do anything. They said, you're going to have about two months where you feel pretty good. Then you're going to have two months where you feel pretty bad. And then you might have another two months to live. And that's going to be it. And his brother was, you know, in shock. He retired uh, from his job. They bought a house. They kind of made a bucket list, he and his wife. They bought a house in the mountains in a resort town and um, invited friends and family to come up to the mountain house. And, and one of the friends was a devout Catholic uh, who had been, uh, you know, friends with him for 30 years. And she gave him this crucifix. And I know this doesn't work this way in, in every circumstance. And we've all lost loved ones to cancer. But this is his story and that he was telling me on Monday. And this, this friend gave him this crucifix and said, the Lord put it on my heart that I, that I should give you this crucifix. And I'm going to be praying for you that the power of Christ would be known in your life. He said, okay, you know, thanks. He didn't really believe in it, just kind of put it in storage. But then he, I don't know whether he thought it was magic or whether he thought, you know, maybe there's something to this, this gospel story that he learned as a child. But he put it on the wall over his chair where he liked to sit. And uh, a few months later, went back for uh, a scan. Um, and, and the doctors, the doctor was a believer at the time and said, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but you, you've been through a miracle. You're cancer-free. There are no nodules on your throat. There are no lesions on your lungs. You are, you are cancer-free. And that, my friend, is not medically possible. Uh, you've, you've encountered a miracle. And, you know, he celebrated. And, and my, my friend was telling me the story. And he, with tears in his eyes, he said, I'm convinced the Lord did that in order to bring my brother back to himself to wake him up and to remind him whose he is. 
And he got involved in a church there in the, the mountain town that, that they bought the house in and started going to a men's group on Friday mornings and, and was transformed by the grace of God. So much so that a few years later, when cancer returned for a third time and he died, that at his funeral, people who knew him from the mountains were describing him and people who knew him before said, can this be the same person? He'd undergone such a, a, a massive transformation of grace as a spiritual person, as someone who'd been conformed to the image of Christ. I don't know why God answers some prayers differently. I, I, don't, I don't know why some people he calls home to be with himself and why others he grants more time to uh, on this earth. But I do know that in this situation, it was a testimony to what God had done in this guy's life and that he went home fully conformed to the person of Jesus Christ. Not fully, but on his way to being conformed and now is fully conformed to Jesus Christ. My friend looked at me and said, you know, what God did is a miracle. And, and it's one thing to know some Christian doctrines and to have some information about Christian theology, but it's another thing to have this heart hope that is deeply rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To live your life spiritually where you're betting everything on Jesus. We tend to function like atheists though, don't we? Because the world teaches us to be pragmatic, to be practical, to, to do kind of the, the things that are physical in this life, to be expedient. And when a crisis comes, if we're not spiritual people, we don't look to what our beliefs are. We look to what is easiest and most expedient. We act upon what is in our hearts, in our practical struggles in this life, our ultimate trust, that place where our foundation is, comes automatically to the surface in times of crisis. My mentor friend is a godly man. He's a longtime Christian, and he's got a deep prayer life, reads the Bible all the time. But he, he came home and told his wife and young children at the time that his brother was cancer-free and had experienced a miracle after his second uh, bout with cancer. And he was, you know, elated and amazed by what God had done. But his nine-year-old daughter, who was a believer and been baptized in Jesus Christ, said to him, hey, why are you so surprised, Dad? We prayed for this. And God heard it. And God answered. He said, you're right. We, we don't have the faith that children do often. And yet that is how we are called to live. Our text for today is about that faith that is rooted in a heart hope. Where does your heart lie? Because there your treasure is also. What is the hope of your heart? What is your ultimate trust? It makes all the difference. Because you all know that you can claim to believe something, that's fine. You might even have studied something. You might even have some knowledge about it. You might have even gone through some ritual practice, such as baptism or church attendance. But until your heart is captured by it. You don't really know it until you've experienced in that warm and powerful spirit-filled way, 
you don't really know it. It's like the difference between reading a recipe for chess pie and actually taking that warm bite of chess pie from Baked on Eights down there that's so good. I love chess pie, just FYI. If anyone wants to put one in my, don't do it. I don't need it, but it's, it's delicious. And, and reading a recipe is fine, it's sugar and butter pretty much, I think, but, but actually putting it on your fork and into your mouth, that's where the magic happens. Because we all know there's a difference between knowing something in our head and actually experiencing it. Isaiah is going to answer a question here today. How do we move from head knowledge to heart hope? His answer is a twofold answer. It's to remember and return. How do we develop heart hope? It's like that centurion who told Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I struggle. And I know we all do. It doesn't come naturally to us to have this deep abiding heart hope. Our tendency is to go the pragmatic way of the world. In reminding ourselves of the reality of who God is and who we are, in light of that, we're compelled to repent and to return, to come back to him. To, to, to come back to him in the big things and in the small things of life. So let's dive into our text for today. Isaiah chapter 31, we're going to be in 31 and 32 today as we continue our series on the safe house that God builds for us. If only we will remember and return. Look at verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they're many, and in horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. We had a very similar message last week that, remember, the Assyrian army is encroaching upon Judah, and the people of Judah say, where can we go? And they say, let's go to Egypt. There you have a lot of horses and chariots. They're strong. But remember, Egypt is where they were captives. They were literally human property. They were slaves. And they wanted to return to slavery in order to be spared from the brutal Assyrians. That seems crazy to us, but again, we do this. We do similar things all the time. When faced with a crisis, we tend to run to whatever pragmatic solution presents itself, whether it's God's solution or not, doesn't really matter to us in crisis. Why not form an allegiance with Egypt? They got a big army. But the Israelites had forgotten who they belong to. That's point number one on our, we're going to see five points of remember and returning. Remember whose you are. Who do you belong to? God had called them out of the whole world to be his special family, to be his treasured possession, a people for his own possession, as Exodus 19 verse 5 says. Their heavenly father is the one who rules the world. He's the one who made it all. He's the one who sustains it all. Remember what happened in another famous passage where Egypt's horses and chariots and horsemen are mentioned in that exact same order, Moses' song, Exodus chapter 15, verse 19, the song of Moses. For when the horses of Pharaoh, do we have this? 15, 19? For when the horses, I'll, I'll read it from the Bible, how's that? <laughs> I got one of those. 
In uh, Exodus 15, 19, Moses is singing a song of victory over God's people and over their enemies who have fled before them. And here's what he says. He talks about horses, chariots, and horsemen in the same order. When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Haven't you learned all of Egypt's horses and chariots and horsemen can't do anything against you? I'm the one who takes care of you is what God's saying. I'm the one who protects you. It doesn't matter how many horses and chariots Egypt has. Isaiah is saying that a nation is not strong because it stockpiles weapons or grows a huge army. Isaiah is saying that trusting in the military might of worldly nations doesn't lead to actual security. Dwelling secure means staying close to our omnipotent, loving, gracious Father in such a way that we know he can always protect us. Look at verse 2. And yet he's wise and brings disaster. And he does not call back his words. God knows what he's doing. God's never backed into a corner. God's never taken by surprise. God's never worried or anxious like I tend to get. He's never caught off guard. He's working in ways that we can't fathom because he's never worried about the outcome. He knows where this is going. Look at verse three. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. Okay, that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Because no one's arguing that the Egyptians are God. No one's arguing that the, the horses are spirits, right? But Isaiah's making the point. There's a higher reality. There's a deeper and truer and more significant reality going on behind the scenes that's more real and more impactful to us than the things that we can see or touch or feel or smell around us. The spiritual realm is ultimately the one that truly matters. If we're honest, that's where we lose most people, okay? Our faith isn't strong enough to accept that the spiritual world can actually impact or actually overcome the physical world. We don't want spiritual answers. We want concrete answers. I get that. I, I want concrete answers too. But this is the way God created us, to live by faith. To live by faith. That's the only way to live the Christian life. And again, he knows what he's doing. He wants us to love him and to trust him for who he is, not for what we can get out of the deal. That's selfish. When we come to him as little children who really love him, for Doyle and I were talking about his baptism. He said, I was baptized as a little kid to, to not go to hell. But now I know that baptism is, is, is a powerful symbol of how you obtain fellowship with the Father. It's so much deeper to him now and truer. When we come to him like a little child and surrender everything to him, we're transformed. We're raised into a new life. We learn to depend on his goodness and his grace for everything. We become more and more conformed to his image. We call that discipleship. It's one of our five purposes. 
We belong to him and he will never let us go. Look at verse four. Here's a cool illustration. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Who's the prey in this picture? We are. We're the prey. We're like that, that, that rack of ribs that this lion has procured for himself. And he just growls over it with this low grumbling pleasure. And the shepherds come out and they're like, hey, go away. He's like, yeah, whatever. I'm not phased by you. I'm going to keep enjoying my prize. Y'all know that we got a dog. I didn't bring a picture, sorry. 70 pounds. She's 70 pounds now. Annie is a year old golden retriever and a COVID puppy. I, I asked Logan uh, Newton for our, our crate and he said, you're getting a COVID dog, aren't you? I said, yes, we are. And she loves to, to find a good stick to chew on. When she finds a good stick, man, she, she grabs that thing and she holds it as high as she can in the air and she prances. I mean, she just prances and she's so proud and so delighted by this stick. And then she'll lay down and she'll just chew on it like it's the best thing in the world. We spend too much on dog toys, I'm telling you, because she just loves sticks, you know. Uh, but that's the illustration here. The Lord finds us. Like Annie finds a great stick and he delights in us. I'm not going to go so far as to say the Lord prances, but the Lord takes great pleasure in us. And unlike Annie, who's easily distracted and goes from one thing to the next, the Lord will never let us go. The Lord is like that mighty lion, the lion of Judah, who just low grumbles over us in pleasure as his prize. It's a beautiful illustration. We are secure when we belong to him. That brings us to the second point. Once we've remembered whose we are, now it's time to repent and return to the blazing center of who God is, a consuming fire. Look at verses six and seven. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. It's not a popular choice, is it? For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols and silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Those, day, those days, we've, we've, we've made these fake gods, these counterfeit gods, and we've turned to them instead of turning to the living God. There's no way to experience the power and the presence of God without getting rid of our idols. We must let go. True repentance in, involves casting aside the worldly things that we've looked to to save us, to bring us purpose, to give us identity. Those are counterfeit gods that can never make us happy and they certainly can never save us. Look at verse eight. The Assyrians shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword and his young men shall be put to forced labor. And here's the part about the fire. His rock, talking about the king of Assyria, his rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord. Fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. There in the holy city, sacrifices are made, offered on the consuming fire of God. It's, it's a blazing hot fire. 
and yet their sins are atoned for. There we are made right, and there we draw close to God, who can alone do God-sized things, not by a sort of man. When my mentor friend was telling me about his brother's healing, he said, God wanted my brother to know it was no human hands that did this. It was supernatural. It was me. In Zion, the city of the Lord, the Lord himself is present with his people in the Holy of Holies. Just outside, he consumes all those sacrifices. And there we draw warmth from his presence. Many of us, our hearts have grown cold as we have not, not entered into the holy place of God. I'm not just talking about going to church. There's plenty of people who go to church who don't experience the warmth of the presence of the Lord. Many of us need to return to the fire of God's holiness today through repentance. Next, point three. We need to remember the promise of our king, of our king, of who he is and what he's going to do. The rock, again, in verse nine, referred to the king of Assyria. He's a worldly king and that he passes away in terror. But here's our king. Look at verse 30, uh, chapter 32, verse one. Behold, a king will return in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. That's who our king is. He comes to restore justice, to bring nourishing waters to a parched, dry, and weary land. A king will reign in righteousness. He will return. You know Evan, our youth guy, he loves Lord of the Rings, and I do too, and we always talk about it. I said, hey, there's this passage in the sermon text where the king returns to the city, and Evan immediately said, oh, yeah, return of the king. When, when Aragorn stands, go to these pictures, Esau. We got uh, some pictures. When Aragorn stands on top of Gondor, that's Gondor, right, Evan? Is that right, the, the white city? Yeah, and, and he's coronated. Look, go to the next slide. As, as Gandalf puts the crown on the rightful heir, on the king who is going to bring peace and prosperity to the land and the fellowship is reunited. Go to the next one. You see that the hobbits are here and, and Legolas and Gimli, they're all back to the fellowship that was broken is now united and the king reigns in justice. Evan was talking about all this and saying, oh, it's just so great. What a great powerful picture of what is to come for us as well. Our Messiah has come and he's coming again. Not as an ego, maniacal dictator or politician, not as a violent warlord, but as a suffering servant. In chapter 40 to 55, we're going to get there sometime in July, September, somewhere in there. <laughs> we're going to see that he's a servant. He's ushered in a whole new kind of kingdom, a whole new kind of kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. And he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, from whence he will come again to judge the quick, that's the living, and the dead. Earth and heaven are going to be remade into one place, and we're going to have a big feast as earth and heaven are one in the marriage of the bride of Christ, his church, and the groom as the bridegroom returns. Uh, we're going to have a big coronation feast and party, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to reign with him forevermore. What's amazing is that his rule changes us, his subjects. His righteous rule 
changes who we are. Look at verses three and four. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. It's gonna change who we are. It's gonna gonna transform us in righteousness and make our priorities different as well. It's a beautiful thing. It awakens us a spiritual alertness. We start to see things his way. That's what Paul prays for us, the church, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. He prays that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We are his glorious inheritance. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That's where we're headed. It's a beautiful thing. You don't have to be a sociologist to understand that our culture has its values out of whack, right? You, you can know that just by looking around. We give glory and honor to counterfeit gods, to foolish things, and we take no stock of truly worthy things. That's all gonna change when Jesus returns and reigns. Look at verse five. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to, to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who's noble plans noble things. Our king is noble. And on noble things, he stands. Our values are transformed by our king. The righteous rule of Christ leads us to return again, this time to the truth of God's own voice. Look at point number four. We have to re return to his voice. We live in a very noisy time where there are a cacophony of voices compete for our mind's attention and for our heart's affection. It's amazing how, uh, as a dad, I've learned to drown out my five-year-old son's voice. That sounds very harsh and unloving. I'm sorry if that sounds very uh, curt, but I'll, I'll be like in a group of people and he'll be like, Dad, 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 I'm like, not hearing it at all. And people are like, your son's calling you. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, you're right. Sorry, I just learned to drown that out. Sometimes we do that with God's voice. Sometimes we do that with God's voice. Look at verse nine. Rise up, you women. He calls out the women here. They're representatives of the whole society. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. The whole society is represented by these women who've become deaf to the voice of God. Instead, they've been living for the false peace of momentary comfort. Uh, the, the word complacent is used three times in verses 9 to 11. They, they're looking for this momentary comfort and they've grown complacent spiritually. The dictionary defines complacent as showing smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or with one's achievements. That's a dangerous attitude for the people of God. 
Satan would love to convince us, you don't need a savior. You're doing pretty good on your own. He would have us believe that if we can accumulate enough of the right things that we'll be okay without Jesus. But the kingdom of Christ is no place for elitist, escapist, self-materialism. That's a path to misery, but there is a way back to the kingdom. God's way out of this soul-destroying complacency is to remember that we don't have to do it on our own. The way out is right here before us. We need to listen to the prophetic gospel with a heart that's open so that we can accept even the hard truths that are calling us to change. Sometimes we don't want to hear God's voice because it's saying, hey, you're going the wrong way. I hate to be told I'm going the wrong way. I'm not lost. <laughs> I tell my kids, I'm never lost. I don't I know where I'm going. I don't like to be corrected, but we all need that, don't we? Especially me, goodness gracious. <laughs> But we turn out, tune out God's voice, we don't remember that, that God wants what's best for us. He sent us a great helper, an advocate. Last week was Pentecost Sunday. The last point here is to remember the work of the Holy Spirit. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and then the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest then justice will dwell in the wilderness, Lord, come, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. How many of you long for quietness? My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. That's where this is headed because of our righteous king and because of the spirit being poured out upon us. We talked about how the spiritual reality, the work of the Holy Spirit is more real and more powerful than even the physical workings of this world. God promised to pour out his spirit on us in such a way that not only it transforms us, but it transforms the world in which we live. The fruit of the Spirit is going to produce a great harvest of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Man, those last two get me every time. <laughs> what kind of world would it be if we live in if more people evidenced those fruits in their lives? You know, my, my friend and I, uh, who had lunch, we went to Green Hills Grill. It's where I always go. I love Green Hills Grill. I'm, this is not a paid endorsement, but if anyone wants to give me, you know, uh, a paid endorsement, I'm open to it. Uh, but we, we go there all the time. And uh, we were waiting on a table, and, and praise God, post-pandemic, they're doing well. Business is picking up. And, and there was a wait. Even though I had made a reservation, there was still, at 1145, like a 15, 20-minute wait for a table. And it was crowded and we're waiting and I'm not the most patient person. And, and my friend and I were just talking and having a great time. And finally the host came up to us about 20 minutes later and said, your table's ready. And we said, okay. And he took us to our table and uh, we, we sat down and the server came up all flustered. They were, you know, short staffed, I think. And, and he said, I'm so sorry about your weight. And my friend said, hey, it's okay. No worries. We're just talking and catching up. We're, we're not in a rush. We're fine. 
And I think the server thought he was being sarcastic or something. He was totally serious. He was like, hey, we're okay. We're fine. And the guy was like, uh, are you, are you upset? And he's like, no, we're really okay. I really am okay that we waited 20 minutes. It's fine. In the long run, it doesn't matter. We're okay. And the server was like, oh, thank you. Just showing a little grace in that moment. You know, he's a spiritual person who's been transformed. I just thought about, that's a Christian man right there. What kind of world would it be like if we all lived like that with graciousness and the fruit of the Spirit exuding from us? God wants to renew us. He wants to bring us back to himself. After Jesus ascended to the Father, remember he sent us the parakletos in Greek, the one who's called alongside of us as an advocate, as a helper. He pours out his spirit on people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, washing away complacency and replacing our, our fake joy, our counterfeit joy with the real joy and peace and quietness as we abide secure in him forever. So how do we move from an intellectual belief in God to a lived experience of God? How do we develop the kind of heart hope that changes how we approach the little things and the big things? We must remember and return. Let's start by remembering whose we are. The, the, the five points here. Number one, that we are the prized possession of the Lion of Judah and he will not let us go. And then let's bring our cold and calloused hearts into the fire, the purifying fire of God's holiness. Do you long to be near God in worship or do you dread to be close to him knowing that the fire is too hot for you maybe? And then let's worship him in the splendor of his glory. And then let's remember our king who comes, point number three, to bring a whole new kind of kingdom, a better kingdom than any earthly kingdom, one that will never spoil or fade away. And then let's, point number four, return to his voice, to his truth, as we learn to quit being so smug in our petty achievements. And finally, let's remember the Holy Spirit who works in us, that he works to bring about the things of God in us. May we remember and return. Let's pray. Lord God, so many of us have grown calloused and cold by being away from your holy fire. We've learned to tune out your voice just like me tuning out Isaiah's poor voice. God, help us to remember who you are and who we are, that we belong to you, that you love us like more than a lion with his prey, more than Annie with a stick, that you delight in us. God, when we can't love ourselves, you love us more than we could ever imagine. You know every wicked thought we've ever had, every wicked word we've ever said, and you still love us and treasure us. God, may we learn to live into that love. May our cold hearts grow warm by your presence. Help us to enter into your holiness through worship, not just on Sundays, but every day as we pray, as we read your word, as we learn to sing to you from our souls. God, I pray that you would 
encourage us, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the world, that you would use us as you grow the fruits of the Spirit in us to bring about your good purposes for this world so that one day wars will cease and that our, our incredible military men and women will no longer have to serve as they do. God, we thank you again on this Memorial Day weekend, both for the ones who serve our country and for the gospel of Jesus Christ who gave everything for us. Lord, we need you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you are tempted here to be uh, self-reliant, kind of a good old Ralph Waldo Emersonian kind of way, let's re remind ourselves today, let's remember that we need God every hour. We're going to sing, I need thee every hour. Most gracious God, we need him every hour, every minute. Every second, you could say, we need the Lord. Every breath we have is a gift by his grace. If you are here today and you've never become a Christian, I invite you to come right now and talk to me about surrendering your life like John and Jackson and Doyle have done. And, and maybe you want to be baptized. Maybe you just need to come pray. Maybe you need to return and remember today. Don't leave this place without having dealt honestly with the Lord. If you want to be a member of Woodmont Baptist Church and be a part of what God's doing, you know, at staff meeting, we were like, you know, it's getting crowded. Should we open the pews up? And our advisory team is telling us all this medical advice, which is great, and uh, things that I don't know. But uh, it's great that we're having more people come that we have to squeeze in because there's not enough room. That's a great problem to have. And the Lord's blessed this church in so many ways. I just pray that we'll continue to be faithful, becoming the body of Christ that God wants us to be, to bless others, to play our part in what he's doing. I wish you could see what I see here throughout the week as grief share meets, as celebrate recovery meets, as the food pantry prays for folks and hands out groceries, as we answer phone calls, as our staff uh, ministers to the needs of this church. It's just an amazing thing. If you want to be part of it, I'll be right here. You can come talk to me about it. Whatever it is, let's stand and sing from your heart to God's heart. I need thee every hour.